Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. I feel like this conversation is going to be so exciting for the post-traumatic parenting community because I feel like you and I, we connected online just because like we liked each other's stuff. And we had the same energy and kind of similar backstories in some ways, like coming to parenting from a place of wanting to be a cycle breaker. And we've just always really gotten each other. So I feel like this is going to be a really exciting conversation. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm so excited. And I know that you are a no-holds-barred kind of person and you're comfortable talking about your stuff. So are you comfortable going right into it and telling us your backstory, your cycle-breaking story? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because I've been on other podcasts too. And um, I just am someone who goes first, right? So I think as parents, we need to go first. Everyone's di- equally different. But for me, back when I was like 30 years ago, when nobody talked about mental health, I started talking about it because I wanted people to know, right? That it wasn't like when you struggle, it's not that you're crazy because that's the word that they would throw around. So I'll tell you kind of like how I got there. I am a survivor of child sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse from two different family members. My mom caught them and did not protect me. So I was in third and fourth grade. And I think, you know, I ultimately say that I was living in a world of color, even though I had, there was also emotional and um, physical abuse. but my world went black and white and just kind of like dissolved when I was like in fourth grade. Everything just changed so much. But when that happened and my mom caught caught them, she said, this will never happen again. Yet it did. But she also said, we will never talk about this. So that's exactly how like we dealt with things. So you can imagine, right? The, just all the things that happened. And I, and so I will say like, just within the last Five years ago, I went through a childhood sexual abuse like survivor group. So like it took me 40 plus years and I went deep to pull all of that pain out. And it was a horrific year to go and do that. But it was one of the the one of the best things I could do because my next hundred years now, I'm not gonna live to be another 150, but I'm gonna I wanna live completely different, right? I just want to like acknowledge what you're sharing with us because I think there's a lot of members of the post-traumatic parenting community who went through child sexual abuse. That happens not to be the specific trauma I went through, but I treat a lot of sexual abuse and rape trauma syndrome. I think the image you gave of like a world being in color, but I picture a silhouette of a little girl just in black and white while everybody else is living in color is so evocative and true for what that experience is like. And the your mother saying straight out that injunction, we will never speak of this, is so powerful and painful because I get that maybe in some weird way she thought she was protecting you or editing it out. And now we'll just go on with your life as though this never happened and like we'll move on from here. But that injunction against speaking and that lack of acknowledgement that your development has now been derailed onto a different set of tracks is just so much. And especially now that we know so much more about the brain, right? Like, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, no wonder I have so many more answers. It do- doesn't make it better, but at least I, I know that that w- what was thrust on me wasn't my fault because I thought it was my fault for a long, the longest time. And I think in any uh, survivor or like, I don't know, what do you call it? Like trauma, um, What what do you... I don't know, like I call myself a survivor, but anyway, anyone who's been through that, they need to know, right? That like when people put adult issues onto children, that's never your fault. Yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of survivors do have that sense of shame. And I think coming from like with post-traumatic parenting, like as I'm writing the book, 
um, and as I'm hearing so many stories, I think that it's very true that in some way, that sense of shame is our brain trying to protect us because we get the sense that, you know, if it's all my fault, then I can stop doing whatever it is that was all my fault and then I'll be safe. And it restores that illusion of safety. And then we feel like, oh, if I only was a little bit more or a little bit less or a little too much or a little too little, then I could protect myself. And that sense of shame, I think when we try to eradicate shame without acknowledging that the shame is there to be self-protective, there's better ways to be self-protective. But first, thank you, shame. You really were trying to save my life. My very primitive understanding of the world as a really, really little kid, you were trying to save me. Yeah. And it's actually pretty amazing what your brain does to save you, right? Like it, it really does put these protective layers around you. But then as you become an adult, you have to peel those layers back. And because those coping mechanisms no longer work, that's the hard part. I feel like for you, you have such insight into, especially middle schoolers, right? You have such insight into like how they think, how their brains work, what they need to know from their grownups. Do you think that having been through that experience opens your eyes to the kids who don't tell us their needs? Yes. I think to, you know, to take that and then to um, my middle school, like, you know, I, I think about my, like how my people responded to me in middle school. Now think about having that trauma and then bringing that into middle school and not knowing anything about adolescence and your brain changing and your body changing and all these things and your emotions up here. So you already had these emotions, but now they're like way up here. And I remember I went, I, I started, I did not cut myself because I don't like blood. So I burned myself. So I would burn myself to self-harm. And I remember <laughs> I wrote because I loved to write and I would take it around with me. I left it in my art, my art teacher's classroom and they found it and they called my mom and they gave it to her. And it was all like all the things that I was trying to get out. And she was waiting for me coming home. And she's like, so you think this is pretty good, you know, swing in my, my notebook. And I just remember thinking like, I really just wanted to, you know, that feeling, but anyway, she burned it and then said, we'll never talk about this again. Wow. And so that's how we like dealt with everything. So when I fast forward in middle school, when I was a middle school principal, I could target those. Like I, I, I knew those kids, right? Like I had to call social services so many times on families that looked like they were really, that they had it all together. My point is, is that you could see that, but I also realized that when we educate them and when we talk about all the things that are going on and they learn ways to cope and deal with it while their brain is changing, that is an opportunity that we are missing out on. Oh, yeah. I just want to go back to what you said. It's so painful and powerful. I'm just thinking of little you. Like, here you are, you're burning yourself. And then the parallel to your mom burning your journaling, that very raw journaling that you were doing, I think there's, I don't think that symmetry is by accident. I think you were burning yourself yeah. and your story. Yeah. You know, I always say that I paint beauty with ashes and really like, you know, the ashes um, because you have to do the work, you know, like your my life has been at my feet and I've been like, oh my gosh, like this is my life. I can't believe it's my life. You know, I've been homeless. I've been, you know, my mom kick, would kick me out and you just paint, pick up the paintbrush and you have to do the work. You can't just sit and spin. Right. So you have to take action even if it's a small action. And that's how I recovered. That's how I've learned to like do the work. Yeah. I think for you and me both, being the adult that we would have needed at that age is a huge part of our mission. You know, I get that. I actually had a kid who said that to me. I go into schools and I do, I do these anti-bullying workshops and these, um, and these effective communication workshops in various grades. And sometimes I come in and I'm um, talking and I literally had a kid say to me like no one ever talks to us about these things like no one ever tells us how to handle our emotions or what to do when we're so full of emotions that we have no more room in our body and it's like yes yes no one tells us that and it's that kid and you look at that kid and you think oh your developmental trajectory is a little different than everyone else's because you're so hungry for this like what's the backstory here yes 
and the fact that like to be open and listen to their story and then just it's amazing just if they get it out right and then like they start taking these little steps even when they're in middle school is like I look at now like there's um a student I had and she was in sixth grade you know she had a lot of things going on and had made some really poor choices already in sixth grade but I look at her now and you know, like what happens or what the mistakes we make or the the mistakes we fail forward, she is doing amazing things. And her, her sense of self is just, she's put herself back together in such a way. And I think it's because her coping mechanisms, she didn't use them for years and decades. It was shorter. So she started, they, they, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think that that's huge. I always say this about neuroplasticity. You know, I have this feeling about some of the more toxic positivity coaching people online because I feel like trauma people were so good at shame that the first thing when 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 somebody says like well if you would change your mindset you'd do better it it's like yeah we're we're good at shame so please don't give us more <laughs> but like they talk about neuroplasticity like as though it's good news right neuroplasticity is such bad news because neurons that fire together wire together and neurons that keep firing together like weld together when they're little kids, it doesn't happen, right? They're little. So the neurons just started firing together. So if we stop people pleasing in seventh grade, the first few times the kid does it, it never welds itself into a lifelong pattern that we've had to deal with because we stopped it when you're 12. Yes, yes. So that's kind of like, um, I had an eating disorder really bad. It, it all came out that way, right? Because couldn't couldn't do any of it, anything else. My brother was a drug addict. and um, so I was very sick and went into, which was really the best thing that ever happened to me. I went into an eating disorder unit for months after my first year, first semester in college. And since then coming out, my parents did not believe in therapy, anything like that. And I really couldn't afford it. So I took what I learned and I just implemented it slowly in my life over years to, to overcome the eating disorder. I mentored women on my own, just because like when you have therapy, then you have, or you have a hospital, but then the daily of eating, right. Is like, you know, you need that support. So I was that person that's like, okay, well, this is pretty normal, right? Like you're not going to just stop binging one day. (laughs) You're going to like, the goal is to binge less. Like, let's be more realistic. Right. But what I found is like women, they they struggled more. So when I was a principal of a middle school, I'm like, what if, what if we start talking about things and doing things a little different for these young ladies. And so I've done that. And, you know, the social, I've written the social emotional learning around it and it has been awesome. So I developed this thing with like getting girls to lift weights because, you know, it's not about being skinny and 97% of those girls are still lifting weights from college and they have a completely different mindset than they did before. And they want to be strong. Yes. 97% of them. Crazy. Functional bodies, right? That's what that's what we want. Yes, yes, yes. Not decorative bodies. And they were all different body types, right? And they like saw their numbers going up and they were like, and I know, I just know that middle school is an opportunity we're missing. Yeah. We're just missing it. I had a similar experience for my own empowerment, basically because... I was treating at one point so much sexual abuse that I started taking a self-defense class because actually it was a really funny story. I had a patient who was agoraphobic because she had been assaulted on the street and it was just a straightforward phobic reaction. She had been assaulted on the street. She's never leaving our house again. And I had to do an exposure because I was a, I was now I'm a little bit more of a mindfulness based um, therapist, but back then I was very CBT focused. How am I exposing her to like leaving the house and violence? I'm not like punching her. What am I going to do? So I realized what if we did self-defense and I actually, we successfully got her to my office. If her dad would drive her in a van with tinted windows, because that was already enough, just getting her to my office. Like we started over the phone, we got her to my office. And then I hired the self-defense instructor to come to my office and to teach her and me self-defense together as an exposure. I love that. And I mean, she literally went off to college. Like the end of the story is she went off to college, but I discovered I loved self-defense and I went on to get a black belt (laughs) 
And then I started a self-defense class. And the girls who I started teaching are still taking, are still really heavily involved in fitness. Like meaning they're, you know, they're, they're like people who care about their bodies. They lift weights. They're into that. Even no matter how they started out, a lot of them are still practicing different forms of martial arts. I see. And I think that's, that's, that's what's amazing. So yeah, that's amazing. And I, I'm really proud of that woman because I know how hard it is to overcome that, that block, you know, and there's several of them. So that's awesome. Yeah. She went from literally locked in her bedroom. She would not leave her bedroom, like to the extent that no family members could see her besides for her, I believe only her dad. It went from that, like she felt safe with her dad. He was safe and nobody else was. And then to like leaving her bedroom, coming to therapy, and then coming in a van with the windows like, you know, roll down, the self-defense classes, the therapy, the talking about it, to, and this had been a kid who really was sheltered and shy. So she really didn't have, it's not like she knew a lot about sexual assault prior to what happened to her. Um, it was real stranger abduction. It was just like a straightforward blitz attack on the street. So it was like from one moment to the next, like my life is going in one direction, then this terrible assault happens to me, and then I cope by locking myself in my bedroom and never leaving. Two, she went off to college, like many, many thousands of miles away from home because she faced her fear, she got over it, she was empowered, you know, but that's not to say that what happened to her in some ways was, you know, there's that, there's those people who are like, oh my gosh, post-traumatic growth. What happened to her was terrible and awful and horrible and never should have happened. And in the end, she grew and there was a growth experience. Absolutely. And the increments, right? Like, I think it's interesting because I think on Instagram and the 30, the 90 second reel, people are like, oh, you know, 90 seconds. And it's like, you know, healing is not linear and healing takes so much time. And you never really get there, right? Like, because you have to apply what you know to different situations. And so, you know, just something that I think most people, they think, oh, well, I'll just do a little bit of this and voila, you know, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. She is one of the people why I'm writing the post-traumatic parenting book. And I'm sure you had that same experience where we can heal from our trauma and it's like we we can get so much better and we can come to terms and understand our coping mechanisms and incrementally heal and then we become parents and it's like we have to do a whole nother level of healing and that like isn't that like and like nobody prepares you for it so i'm glad you're writing a book i'm writing a book <laughs> yeah about my but not like as mine is more from an educational point of view and just like first person as a mom and how i reset my parenting with my girls and they are actually writing that with me so they are responding to it so that, you know, like people realize that like, it wasn't like, I'm not this like perfect, like parent, right? Like it was, it was ugly at times and, and it has to be. So how old are your daughters now? One just graduated from college and she is living in New York um, on her own. And then the other one is a junior in college. So um, yeah, so one's off the payroll kind of, but um, the other one is still there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. <laughs> So. But that's that's really nice because the, then you can all collaborate and reflect on that journey together and from your different van, vantage points of it. And I, and I think it's really important for um, post-traumatic parents to know that like when you mess up, right, like they don't remember all of this. Like what there is so much power in forgiveness and there's also a lot of power in resetting and growing. So my girls, I asked them like I was like the three words that come up like for our family and they said work ethic and respect because those were my two expectations, right? Like, and then honesty. And I've always been honest with them, even when it hurt, right? And I wouldn't say tell them everything, but I would tell them enough so that they could understand different things that have happened. Such an undoing from like your mother telling you we will never speak about that, right? That honesty of like, yeah, the world can be a hard place. Let's figure out how to make it easier or let's figure out how to handle this challenge together. Yes. And I didn't want them to come from a place of fear because I live a lot of my life from fear. So both girls have anxiety, but we push through the suck and we like face our fears like 15 seconds at a time, right? Like, and some days we don't, 
but some days we do. So like, are you, are you willing to be brave today? Right. Are you going to be brave for 15 seconds? Are you not? It's okay if you're not right. But eventually you're going to have to be brave. And so that kind of thing. Yeah. I always say that, you know, when I speak in schools that I want teachers to always be thinking in terms of those two capacities, you know, like what are you teaching right now? Science, art, math, social studies. Great. What psychological capacity are you instilling at the same time? Absolutely. And I think that's the thing. And I want to teach parents is that you can teach like five things at once. Right. Right. And like you might be really practicing one, but in that, if you're modeling it and you're communicating and you're maybe doing something and experience, and then you're reflecting on it, you're teaching so many skills that you don't even realize, but you have to do it. Yeah. And you have to be willing to do it even when your bandwidth is low or even when you feel like deep down inside, there's like a voice telling you like, I'm doing so bad at this. I don't know what I'm doing. Other moms are more cut out for this than I am. That willingness also has to be there. Yes. Yes. And I, and honestly, like, it's just so important for people to know, like, it does, like it, it's raising a beautiful mess. I, when my girls got to middle school, I seriously say that middle schoolers taught me to parent because behind closed doors, they were raw and they were honest. Like their brains are going, you know, all over the place. So they just told you like it was. And they told you what they thought of their parents. And I was like, that's where my kids are headed because like the parents are trying to control them. And then the more they grew, they tried to control them even more. And so I saw this, right? And I, I was like, so I developed this way to discipline by instead of punishing, I work through, it's a, it's a problem solving, right? And the kids normally work through it all themselves. Like I don't really do much of it. And so by the time my girls, like I, I would practice in middle school and practice with my girls. But then by the time my girls got to middle school, it was like that kind of discipline is like key because you're truly teaching. Yeah. And that I think is I'd love to hear more about that process. But I think that that is so key, right? Because I've never seen someone really grow and change from like an artificial punishment. Absolutely. You know, it's just it never opens your capacities. I just had someone, I was working with someone today and she's like, oh my goodness, my, my child cheated. And, but she told me she cheated. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's so great that she told And she was like hung up on that she cheated. And I was like, whoa, 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 let's rewind here. Like she told you. Yeah. Do you really need a punishment? I said, all you have to do is ask her how she's going to solve this. Yeah. Have the conversation. That is the. That is the consequence, right? This uncomfortable conversation. And it, that's what we think of consequence almost like as if it's a punishment. Consequence is just a consequence. Like it's just the, the inevitable, like the consequence of me, I don't know, pressing the off button on this computer is it'll shut off. Like it's not, it, it's not like a artificial punishment thing. It's just like now we're going to have to have this whole long kind of like the consequence of me forgetting the milk today at the grocery store was like turning around and going back inside and waiting <laughs> online again. Right. Next time I won't forget. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I actually like my daughter called earlier and she's like, you know, adulting just comes around and just hits me in the butt sometimes. And I'm like, it's been doing that for like 15 years. <laughs> like, you know, like you want to be an adult and then it comes and like it hits you in the butt and then we work through it. And then you you learn that you can work through it, right? And then we just keep going. You will love this story, especially with your insight in middle school. I think about this. I have a middle schooler right now. She's in seventh grade. So my daughter was like not a morning person. And at one point, she was saying how she'd like to have more time with me. And, you know, we were talking about like different times of day, like, well, then the little kids are around. And then at bedtime, she's stressed out because she needs to go to bed. And I was doing a lot of like controlling her because she's very slow in the morning. She's just not a morning person. Hi, she gets that. She comes by that honestly. <laughs> but I wake up early. I go for a run because I have uh, one. My son gets on a very early bus and I want to get him onto his bus. I really like to say goodbye to my kids in the morning and like st start their day off. And then um, and then I have this a lot of time because then my two daughters, their bus comes much later. So I go for my run in the interim between those two. So she was like, I wish I could come with you on your run. I said, look, if you're all ready. You can come with me on my run. I don't mind. Now, really, like my morning time, I was thinking, do I really want to give up like my alone time in the morning? But you know what? Yeah, I love to spend time with her. She really wants to do this. And I just 
you know, and all of a sudden, you know how all those things that I was nagging her and reminding her to do, put your shoes by the front door, don't forget, you know, like pack your backpack the night before, put your snack in your backpack, put your water bottle in your, put your water bottle in the fridge, like all that stuff. Cause you don't want to be like filling your water bottle because then the bus is coming out to school. <laughs> all of a sudden when it was like, I need to be ready to go with mom because I want to be ready to leave when mom leaves so we can go on a morning run together. She's putting her shoes by the door. She's filling her water bottle. She's putting her snack in her backpack. She's putting her coat by the front door with her backpack all packed because if she's not already, she can't come with me. Again, not a consequence like I'm going to give you a punishment now. Right. Very simply just like if you're ready, you can come. If you're not ready, don't come. Up to you, whatever you want to do. She hasn't missed a morning run since we started that. Like not one. Oh my goodness. And has have your mornings changed? So our mornings are so much better because I'm not nagging her because it all became her responsibility. Like I need to get out and our evenings have changed because I'm not nagging her at night either. I'm not like, remember to put your shoes by the door. Remember to put your shoes by the door. Did you finish your homework yet? Are you going to bed on time? Like I'm not saying anything. It's like I'm treating her like an adult. It's her problem, her responsibility to get herself out the door when I am walking out the door or not. And she very much wants to come with me. She finds it really cool and fun. It's really gorgeous where we run. And she really likes it. She's starting to get like addicted to that feeling of like sunlight on her face in the morning, the morning air, seeing the birds, you know, like everything that we do, our alone time together when there's no little children around. You're like hitting all the things, right? Like you're giving her responsibility. She gets time with you. She's like, look at all those things she's learning in just that small amount of time. Yeah. And it's and I stopped completely stopped trying to micromanage her. I realized I was getting sucked into this micromanagement loop. That just felt inevitable, but really didn't have to happen. No. And that's a lot of times, like, that's what what a lot of parents have to do. And I honestly still, still want to micromanage. And my girls were home this past weekend with for Thanksgiving. And they're like, mom, you don't have to do this. Like, we know we live on our own. And I was like, I know, I know, I know, I know. So um, just interesting. Yeah, because we're still the mom and we still want to nurture. We still want to do all that stuff. But then on the same token, they feel so empowered when we let them manage their own lives. And then we have an occasional troubleshooting. Like once or twice, my daughter wasn't ready in the morning. We had a little troubleshooting conversation about like what would have made it easier to actually be ready and um, figured it out. And that was that. Yeah. My girls, like uh, they, <laughs> you know, forgetting things back at school and I said I gave them and I had a key to the school like when they were in the school with me middle school they could go back one time I had the key they could go back one time and then that was it and then when they were like not in my school I said I will come and bring your stuff one time right you have a a pass but after that I'm going to time how much time it takes out of my day and then you're going to owe me that time I think that's pretty fair and they're like okay never had to do that never had to do it, you know? And I just like set it up like that, you know, like, and not like I'm mad. I'm like, I'm not going to get mad. I'm just going to tell you, this is how it's going to be. Right. I feel like I had that once a mom, or was it a teacher asked me like, what's a fear consequence to impose for this and that? I said, if you're imposing a consequence, you're, you're talking about a punishment, not a consequence. A consequence is the inevitable thing. Now you can parcel it out. I had that one of my son who's now in college he used to not also not be a morning person, not be great at making the bus. And I would say to him, you know, if I have to drive you to school, my time is worth money per hour. So you need to figure out. I, I can tell you what my time is worth, but down to the minute, right? All I have to do is take my billable rate and divide it by 60. And I can tell you what my time is worth per minute. So I said to him, so I can tell you what a ride to school will cost you if I have to drive you. You know, you have an allowance, you have money, like this is my time. My time costs money. He he sat down and he looked at me and he said, wait, your rate for your rate for seeing patients or your rate for speaking for public speaking in schools? Like, which rate are we talking about? That was <laughs> like smart. He was doing the calculation in his head. Like, yeah, that's actually a good question. Like, do I get a friends and family <laughs> discount? Like, um, but he did it once. And yeah, I took that money. Like, absolutely. He never did it again. And that's the thing I think that I learned when I was a middle school principal before my girls got to, to middle school was regulating my myself, right? So like how to regulate yourself in that moment when everything is going high and it takes a lot of practice. And so I think sometimes people are like, oh, I need to be, you know, no, like, honestly, if I'm not regulated, I'm stepping away and I'm like, I'm not going to do it. But like, usually when I 
present anything, it's usually very calm. And I think that that that's good. And I think that's, I think a goal, I think anyone can do that actually, because all they have to do is step back, step back and, you know, the pause, practice the pause. Hi friends. I'm interrupting this episode to let you know that we now have a post-traumatic parenting YouTube channel. Yeah, that's right. We finally have a YouTube channel. It's for everything that needs a little bit more of a visual component, maybe some pictures, maybe some demonstrations. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to YouTube, search for post-traumatic parenting and subscribe to the channel. Make sure to click the little bell in the bottom of your screen so you never miss a single episode. And please let me know if there are topics you'd like us to cover on the post-traumatic parenting YouTube channel. If you do join the YouTube channel because you heard about it on this podcast, feel free to DM me or mention that in the comments and you will have my undying appreciation. Thank you for listening. And now back to the episode. I think when we let our emotions, it becomes about something else. You know, and if I would be sitting there trying to rush that kid in the morning, it starts becoming like, why does nobody hear me? Why does nobody pay attention to me? And the fact that I'm a person with my own life and stuff, right? I'll, I'll start, my inner child will start really talking and it has nothing to do with my kid at that point. He's late because he's late because he's not a morning person because he needs to develop those executive functioning skills to make the bus. Right, exactly. Me feeling unheard, that's about me and my inner child and has absolutely nothing to do with his need to develop executive functioning. So if I can take that step back and be like, sure, you can miss the bus, but what I charge. So go ahead, but you do have to go to school and you know this is what's going to be. All of a sudden, it becomes it becomes funny. It becomes just this normal thing that, yeah, there's give and take in every relationship. And if you don't make the bus, you have to have another way of getting to school that is going to be a lot less efficient, which means it's going to cost you some money or some time. Like, you're right. I could have also done what you did and said, you, you owe me the time. No, no, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I like yours because I could, I could earn some money, <laughs> but I was, you know, um, but it doesn't matter. It's just, it's truly them making a decision. And also, Every decision has unintended consequences, even the good ones, right? So teaching them that as well. So it's you're constantly teaching. So I think as parents, you are their first teacher and you can't let your ego get in the way. I think our egos are um, a lot of it too, which the inner child, but yeah. It's the inner child. It's the ego. It, it ends up becoming like, especially when we have a very wounded inner child, that's when things get very big, very fast because- it suddenly goes from this kid is ignoring me, which could be like a sort of value neutral statement, like this kid's not hearing me, to I'm never heard by the people who I love. And then that becomes something so big. And yes, yeah, sometimes that becomes about ego, like how dare you ignore me? How dare you disrespect me? When it really should be about, hmm, what frontal lobe capacities would this child need to make the bus? And that's all it should be about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But we've both been on such a journey to get to that place. And I think there's probably a lot of post-traumatic parent listening who are either parenting very young children or who are just starting this journey of figuring out that their trauma has impacted their parenting that will probably look at where we are on this journey and feel a little intimidated. Okay. I'm going to tell you that when my girls were little, so I'm very sensitive to a lot of things. And I will be honest, I had postpartum with, well, with both of them, but by the second one, I, I got help because I, I just couldn't do it. Right. And I think that was really beneficial. And I remember thinking, I am not at a place to be the best parent I can be. And I didn't want to wound my kids. And at that point in time, like, like everyone was like, no medicine, you know, like, and I was like, I'm getting on it. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did because I didn't have time for therapy. I didn't at the time. I know I had depression. I had the history of it. You know, I knew all these things and not that like, but I just want people to ask for help, like get the, get some kind of help. Number one. Okay. Number two. I mean, if you, whatever, I'm not ashamed of that. And number two is you are human. And that means that if you kept that baby alive today, <laughs> that's okay, right? And so for me, like my daughter would, I don't know, like sometimes I didn't like them even touching me. And I felt so guilty about that. And you don't tell anyone that because my gosh, what could be wrong with you as a mom if you didn't want your own children touching you? 
Yeah. But that's pretty common with a history of sexual abuse. Absolutely. But you felt so alone, right? So you're not alone. And you do what you have to do to get where you need to be. And every one of us has done that. Every one of us. Yeah. I think for me, similarly, I have a very, very strong, I'm very hypervigilant. I have a very strong startle response. So if you, um, because I think my trauma also occurred very suddenly. So when, so if my kids would like, you know, when they're little and they just grab you around the waist, like they come and they tackle you out of nowhere, I would sometimes yell or I, I would startle and go into a panic attack. And then I would have that same thought of like, what's wrong with me? My kid gave me a hug and I'm yelling or my kid gave me a hug and I'm, and I'm freezing up or panicking. And like, I have to like sit on the couch and get my heart rate down. Like my poor kid, like, what am I, what am I doing? I'm damaging this child and so much self-blame and so much self-judgment until I learned like, well, duh, you have flashbacks. (laughs) You're going to have a panic attack if somebody grabs you suddenly. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. My daughters were here. And they know, you know, that I, like, they knew that that year, like, I, they were older. But my youngest goes, I'm going to need, mom, I'm going to need a lot of cuddle time. And she, and I said, okay, you know, and she knows to kind of sometimes, like, she, she knows, especially as an adult, she can't come and do that because it does startle me. And so she said, you know, she was like, I need some, I'm going to need some cuddle time. And I was like, all right, you know, give me a half an hour, (laughs) you know, and so we, and I, I know that sounds awful, but we had to do that because I I would freak out and it wasn't her fault. And I had to tell her it wasn't her fault as she got older. But when they're little and they they don't know, just know that you're not alone, I guess. Yeah, it also wasn't your fault, right? Like the fact that your body had been made alien to you is not your fault either. Yes. But yeah, you can't tell a four-year-old about what happened. Yeah, yeah. And so like when they were old enough, right, I would say like, you know, mommy was hurt at different times in her life by people. And so sometimes this is hard for me. That's it. Yeah. I similarly being able, I'm not going to tell my children my trauma story. My older children know my trauma story, but my younger children, but being able to say like, I startle easily. So I need you to say mommy hug. Even my two and three-year-old saying to them, first say mommy hug, and then we give a hug. Yes. Right. And you feel bad about that, but it's it's what you have to do, you know? And And I think that's what's with my girls, like I look and I, and I was actually this weekend because sometimes different things can, you know, I, sometimes they trigger, but sometimes they're just pressure points and I get sad. Right. And they're like, mom, do you know how good, of, like, we love you. We want to come home. You did it. Yeah. And I still don't believe that. Right. And I'm still working through that. So anyway. Yeah. You know, that Daniel Tiger song, parents come back. I sometimes think about it like children come back, you know, <laughs> they go to college and they come back. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the, like, they don't feel obligated that they they want to come home has been my my goal. If you did it right. I actually had somebody emailed me, um, messaged me on Instagram, a clearly very bitter mother. Like she was clearly very upset about the fact that her, one of her children has estranged from her. Now, I don't know her backstory. I'm sure there's a lot of pain there going to be dialectic about it. But she said, I don't know why you're posting all this stuff about like, you know, parenting responsively and gently, because you know, what's the point? They're just going to grow up and estrange from you anyway. And I just like, I had this like moment of hilarity where I'm thinking, well, Gladys, I'm making up a name, but like the point would be that they don't estrange from you. That's like also possible. I get her pain and I get why she's writing it in that very sarcastic, angry way. Just to be clear, I wasn't the therapist involved in her case, and I don't know her story. I only know what she wrote on Instagram. But it is possible to parent them in a way that they come back, right? That 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 is the other side of that. Yeah, and I'll I'll tell you, like, um, I have not been in contact with my family for nine years, and I, actually, I did it when my mom started doing to my one daughter what she did to me, and. I was like, you know, then I was like, no more. Like, like I have, I, I will protect at all costs, but the hardest thing to do is to orphan yourself. It's a really hard thing. So when someone d- decides to do that, it's not for, you know, n- no reason at all. Yeah. It's not for nothing. Yeah. It's not like, yeah, I guess I'll estrange from my pam- family today. I also have some people from my childhood that I had to set very, very strict 
high, high boundaries with. And also what gave me the courage to do that was watching those people do to my children what had been done to me and just having that visceral no, nope, nope. What I wouldn't do for myself, I would do for my kids. And absolutely. And I think that right there is breaking a cycle, right? Like, yeah, cycle breakers, it's hard. It's like it's nonstop work your whole life. It's nonstop. And I think the goal is to raise kids who won't have to be cycle breakers because the cycle has been broken. Yes. I think I I wanted my kids to never experience pain. (laughs) I'll be honest. I had this really like high hopes that if I parented well, they would never have to have this pain. That's what I thought. And then, but then I realized that instead I have to model how to rise and push like and and work through pain and I had to be beside them as they had to work through their own pain. So that was something different than I had. Yeah. I think because the differences as you're talking, what's striking me is you had to struggle through your own pain and figure it out. So you thought the pain was the problem, but really the struggling through on your own and being silenced was the problem. They had to have pain, but they had you to talk to about the pain. So different. Yes. And they both have had therapy, like, you know, and, and <laughs> as they should, like, I, it's not about raising these perfect people. It's about raising people who can step into the world and can manage their emotions and set goals and do what they want to do and, and pivot if they don't, can't or whatever. And it's them to be, be able to be the best that they can be on their own. Yeah, I remember seeing a meme on social media where somebody was writing, like, my goal as a parent is to raise kids who will never need therapy. And I remember thinking, like, nah, my goal (laughs) as a parent is to raise kids who would be good candidates for therapy. You know, sometimes people, I do therapy all day long, right? And, like, some people come into therapy and they're they're ready to do the work. They have a big challenge, like OCD, right? It's huge. It's attacking their brain. It's relentless. It's making them miserable. But there's so many healthy building blocks of their personality in there from their parent. I work with a lot of teenagers, right? So they're ready to work on it. Yes, it's a huge challenge, but they're a good recipient of therapy. That parent didn't fail, right? That parent succeeded. And I think that needs to be, that probably be good for you to address because I think that that still the mental health and then the idea of it, I just think that it takes a village, it takes mentors, it takes teachers, it takes everyone. Parenting is the most important, but my goodness, I was like, get help from anyone that would help my children grow. That openness, I think, is is still a little rare, right? Like to that idea that, you know, to be open about our own therapy is one thing, but to be open about our kids' therapy, I think is still a big taboo. My kids are very open about it, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they... I think, um, yeah, they, well, they had some issues when they were, so when they were in middle school, my, their father became really, really ill. So basically it was just the three of us. I mean, we, I was taking care of him as well. And he had some like issues of, with blood clots in his brain and things like that. Anyway, so they like, they had to grow up a lot quicker, I think too, you know, like they had to face some things that they, they shouldn't have had to face when they were in middle school. And some realities like I, that I wish I wouldn't have had to like talk to them about, but I did. So they, you know, we all went together, like not, uh, different people. But, um, you know, I just think it was really important for all of us because we all dealt with it very differently and they needed to figure out how they were going to deal with it and process it. Yeah. And help through. I mean, I dealt with serious parental illness. My father died when I was a kid. I dealt with a parent with a life threatening condition. And yeah. I would have needed much more help than I got. Like now looking back, even the fact that I can normalize getting help, like when I go into schools and I'm doing workshops, just that we're talking about emotions in school and that this is normal. And that if you need help with emotions, there are people you can talk to. If you need help with friendships and social skills and all the things, there are people you can talk to. For me, that already is so hopeful for kids to know. I agree. Because that just didn't exist when I was a kid. Honestly, like listening to my daughter's friends, I'm like so excited for the next generation. I think we've broken a lot of things. We've like, I think we've stopped a lot of things, but I think they're going to continue that and take that torch and, and go forward. I just see big things for them for sure. Yeah. Especially in the mental health. Yeah. Especially in that. Can I ask you, I just, because I know like all of your like middle school work, 
can I ask you, tell us a little bit about like your top tips with like middle schoolers and talking to them about friendship, all that stuff. You have such good information on social media about a very misunderstood age group. (laughs) Okay. So one of the things I think that parents need to know is that you cannot stop the friendship drama. You can't. It is going to happen. And so I think that's the first thing because it also hits pressure points on ourselves of friendships and, and not knowing what to do when we were in middle school. Number one. Number two, it is a huge opportunity to teach them about healthy relationships, setting boundaries, and knowing their value. So it is like an opportune time to be like, I guess I know that this girl is excluding you, but this is what we can do, right? So instead of trying to stop it or call that that girl's mom, it's working through that process of finding and helping them find good friends. Also in, in building the friendships, their emotions are up here, right? That's like, we know that, you know, the amygdala is like, woo, it is developed. The frontal cortex is not. And so she is taking control and she's she's running with it, Right. And it's really important for us to be the logic part of their brain and help them start processing that and bringing the logic into it and modeling that for them. So I do that a lot with questions because I want them to think. So like asking them questions of like, well, tell me about this friend and tell me why this friend is such a good friend. What are some of these traits, right? And what are the traits of yours that that connect you to this friend? Because what you want them to do is you want them to start thinking about what, is that really a good friend? Right? Is someone who only yeah. wants you to be around at that time. But if you were to tell them, well, this is, she's not a good friend. We're just going to stop. Mm-mm. It's asking questions that guide them to think it through. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so true because like it's the temptation to just be like, Tara's not a good friend for you. She's a fair weather friend. She's only friends with you when the other girls are not around or, you know, when, you know, you're plan B all the time. The kid's just going to, nope, I want to be friends with Sarah and only Sarah and you don't get me and you don't get Sarah and I hate you. And I think it's also important to remember that, number one, no one. Now think about this. Who taught you healthy relationship skills? Hmm. Interesting. I think I saw healthy relationships. Not a lot of people taught me those skills, maybe in therapy for the first time. Right. So if you think about good relationship skills, you're talking about connection. You're talking about communication. You're talking about being able to talk about conflict. You're talking about setting boundaries, right? We don't teach our kids that. We think that they're going to get it by osmosis, but that's not going to happen. So when these friendship problems happen, that's when you get a chance to teach them. Yeah. Because their brains are open and they're confused. And it's the experience because what we want to do is just tell, 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 tell. That's not, that's not a learning experience. A learning experience is learning it in the moment. Right. So true. And learning during that process. Right. And we can't shield them from all pain. We have to, they're going to have that pain. My best friend wants to be friends with somebody else. It's just this inevitable part of middle school. I think that happens to everybody. That feeling of like someone says something seemingly innocuous, but really kind of that relational aggression, girl bullying. And I want to burst out crying, but she didn't really say anything, right? That I think we need to go through that. So we learn how to handle that for life. We can't shield them from that. Absolutely. It is a great time to learn because look, middle school friends and middle school friends, it's you and I both know that it's not really that important. However, it is important to teach them the process. So when we start focusing on the process, that's when they learn. And you want them to be able to choose good friends when they're in high school, when everyone has cars. Yes. Right? When everyone's doing those things. You have to think of the long game that you want to play. And I think being a principal of like, I've been a principal of elementary, middle, high, taught college. Like you want to play the long game to high school and you want to start getting the mess, the messy stuff starting in the processes in middle school. Yeah. This goes back to post-traumatic parenting where I was talking to someone about well, what future self are you raising for your kid? And she said, you know, I haven't had a consciousness of my own future self. So, you know, because very often people who are traumatized just don't think of the future. Like, I'm just, I don't know what will happen in five years. I don't know if I'll still be here. And that's hard when you're parenting because parenting's all about the future. So it's so true that if we, like playing the long game means thinking about our future self and their future self. 
And, but you know what I did? Like I struggle still thinking about the future of myself. So it was easier for me to think about the future I wanted to build for them because it had possibilities. Whereas mine was a little bit more corrupted. Yeah. I felt like, right. So like if I, and now, but I also had a tendency to want to over control it and I had to be really um, important, like not to do that. So it's that balance, but it's truly like, even if you can't think of your own, cause I struggle to think for them is really important. And I think it's like that, I think that comes a little bit easier. So I always say like, think of that 26 year old, you want to, what do you want them to be? And I don't think happy, right? Cause that's an emotion. Do you want them to be independent? Do you want them to be problem solvers? Right. Do you want them to know how to learn, like know how to learn, not what to learn, how to learn? Do you want them to be reflective and to be able to self-aware and step back and and adjust things? Right. So those are what we ultimately want so they can step into the world. So when every decision you make, not every, but it's about getting them to that place. And so I think it's really important to go like, yeah, I wanted like my girls, independent, problem solvers, critical thinkers, kind. And honest. Thinking of that is, I, I think, when you think of their future self, it helps us then think of our own future self. Like it is that back, backwards process. I can't first think of my future self to get to theirs. I have to get to theirs, and that helps me build mine. Absolutely. I'm getting cold chills. Exactly. Because we're used to not thinking of ourselves and we're used to thinking about everyone else. But hey, let's use that for good, right? <laughs> let's use that for good. Because we love our kids so much. So let's let's work that backward. And I have to model that in order for them to get it. So I have to go first. So I have to be a problem solver. And so one time, I swear, this was funny. My daughter was learning how to jet ski, right? And I said, you see those seagulls standing in the bay? You do not want to go over there because they are standing. It's too shallow. I know, mom, I know, you know, and we go and I'm on the back of it. And and I'm not even really paying attention because we're having fun. Next thing you know, we're stuck, right? We are stuck in this mud and whatever. No one is around. No cell service. I don't even have a cell phone. I don't know how to get this jet ski. It is like quicksand. It is sinking. Oh, gosh. And she's like, mom, mom, it's okay. We're going to problem solve through this. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't think we're going to, I'm not sure we're going to make it. But I was like, so we like giggled. We laughed. I yelled a little bit because like she was like, I am trying to push, but we were like sinking into the mud. And we finally just, we did it and we did it together. And um, she, and when we got on the thing, she's like, fun stories aren't made when everything is perfect. Fun stories are when like this all goes wrong. And I'm like, well, this is going to be a fun one. But I was always like, okay, girls, like, let's figure out how to problem solve it. Even when I didn't know, the three of us could try to figure it out. And how cool is that, that you instilled that attitude in them? It was just like, yeah, we'll problem solve. We know how. We're problem solving. And you're like, oh, I'm actually not sure. But I wasn't sure. But like, you know, what was the thing? You never let them see you sweat. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I was like, yeah, yeah. But we did. We, um, I definitely know that, you know, my mom said, I hope your girls, she told me I was going to be a bad mom. And then she also said, like, I hope your mom, kids never do this to you. And I remember the last thing I said to her was like, I know they won't because I have really worked hard at building an authentic relationship with them. Not a perfect, but an authentic one. Exactly. And that's the last thing I said to her. And there's no injunction in your family against speaking to you. They can tell you honestly how they're feeling. They can speak of it. Whatever the, it is, they can always speak of it. Oh, yeah. And they do. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and, and I take it. I take it. Yeah. And then I listen. And I, because, you know, I wanted my... I wanted them to know that with conflict, you can work through it. And then after conflict, you can, you can move on. So you can have these hard conversations and you can get mad and you can get glad and you can, but we can move on from it and we can learn and get, get better and keep going forward. Yeah. I had that with someone who told me that because I was, I wrote a few articles about boundaries and I've been talking about it on social media. And she said, well, I hope your kids grow up to set boundaries against you. For some reason, whenever I talk about estrangement, I get a lot of these kind of comments, like apropos of nothing, like you you haven't been following me. You don't know what I write about. You're just sending me this very long. You just yeah. jump in. <laughs> yeah. Which tells me something about how you, how you habitually interact with people, but okay. So this woman just sent me this whole long DM and that's what she wrote. And I remember just like my response being, my oldest kids are adults, like they're in college. My adult daughter absolutely has set boundaries with me, 
which is exactly what I want her to do. I don't want to call my adult daughter because I'm in the mood of chatting with her and she'll grit her teeth and stay on the phone to humor me. I want her to say, yeah, mom's now's not a great time. Can I call you back tomorrow night? And then tomorrow night, we can have a good conversation that is connection and that we're enjoying each other's company. Because if she didn't have boundaries with me, then that's what she would do. She would, my, my oldest daughter happens to be like a, a, a very socially, very affable person. So she's very sociable. So she would grit her teeth and like give her lonely old mom time just because she's a kind person that way. But that's not a relationship. You know, if she wants to go volunteer in a nursing home and do that, um, you know, my mom has dementia. She, she, um, we take care of her. And like, yeah, sometimes my mom wants to ramble and then some, and, and she's not really realizing time, place, context. And then you're being kind and you're, you know, letting this lonely elderly person, you know, be in an altered state and talk at thinking that it's 30 years ago. That's a lovely thing to do. That's kind. That's not a relationship. Absolutely. And so all of that, like, I think that when people hear this, right, they're like, I think, you know, like, oh my gosh, this kind of relationships are made in the really little moments. They're made in the really little moments, right? And it's moments where you don't even recognize it. It's not the big moments. It's not the big trips you take. It's not, you know, even when you blow up and you go off and you feel bad, it's made in the really small moments, the intimate moments. And you just have to remember that because um, sometimes we can get carried away with like our shoulds or coulds or like who's what so-and-so is doing. They're made in the little things. And life is full of those little moments and we have to pay attention to them because they keep coming up. So true. So where can the post-traumatic parenting community members find you? Like what are you most excitedly working on now? Okay. I'm working on a couple things. I am at um, www.nickbowers.com is my web- website, but I don't hang out there. I hang out, of course, on Instagram, as do you, and a little bit on TikTok, but TikTok makes me crazy. I don't know. I just like Instagram. It's kind of my jam. And <laughs> and then also, I actually have, a, I've written a course. I just put it out there for moms of middle school, but it's for you and your daughter to learn together because I know you don't have a lot of time. So there are three minute lessons that you watch something and you learn together. So you learn to your values together and you talk about them. You learn to emotionally regulate yourself and name your emotions together. So that if you don't know how to do that, you do it together because that's kind of what I did with my daughters. I was learning and then I taught them. So we learned together. And I think that's a really great tool. And then I take that and then we actually work about friendship skills, which are truly just relationship skills. So it's like, setting boundaries and standing up for yourself and conflict resolution, all those things that they can do at home, but then they go out into the world and do it as well. So um, I have a course available. And then I do have a book that has about 300 questions that you can ask for different behaviors. I just pulled it out of my website, but it will be launching soon. So if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram, I'm going to be like redoing it just because I'm adding things to it. And um, and it talks about how to discipline through that problem solving. And I think, I'm, yeah, so you're just doing all that good stuff that you're doing as well. Yeah, we're coming at it from like different places, right? But like this idea of cycle breaking parenting, I love the idea of a course that you do together with your daughter. That's just so smart because you're opening up conversations that you that then can take you to all sorts of surprising places. I love that. Yeah, especially when like it's hard to bring it up, right? So it's hard to get them to do it, but at the same time, actually, once you do it, like they, they learn and it's, it's only like 10 minutes out of your week. So it's not a lot of time. It's a time to connect. So. Yeah. Middle school kids can seem intimidating, but just from having, doing so many workshops in school, I will tell you that they're so hungry to have these conversations with their moms, especially the middle school girls. I mean, middle school boys as well, but like they're hungry to do this. So I actually think that the barrier, I think that a lot of moms might think, no, my daughter's going to roll her eyes at this. She's not going to do it. I think they'll eat it up with a spoon when you actually start. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I just, you know, I love middle school. Like I like the, I just love it all. So if anyone has middle school questions about how to teach teach them, because I like the fact that you do the therapy, right? I'm not that person. I'm the person that takes it down to like a really easy level where you can do it with your child, right? So that you can kind of commu- taking what you learn from therapy and all the all the things 
and just make it really simple, right? Simple. For, so you can teach them so that they can become the best versions of themselves. So I take it like a different level, different way. I absolutely love that. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited that we got to do this. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.